Sadie, what's been happening in the big world of space for you this last week? I got to look at some entrepreneurial space. Oh, yes. And just, it's so always interesting, like early companies and what they're thinking. And it's amazing how much you need all these different disciplines. Like, let's say, you know, you're going to do mining on the moon, which mm-hmm. we've talked about in our podcast. And to see companies that are out there trying to figure this out when they haven't been there yet. Right. And, and realizing ahead of time that they need all these different disciplines. And so it's it's just really interesting to me to see how many different aspects. I mean, you can't just do one thing and have a company and be successful. No, and I actually I I love that. I, and working with with small startups, that buzz you get when everybody comes together with different ideas, different disciplines to try and solve problems that have never been solved before in places that we've never even been before. Sometimes I mean, because they have to, because there's no one right. else. They look around and it's just the seven of them, which yeah, I think is like you know for space crews, really it's that kind of mission thing is what brings us together. Yep. You know, we've got a new crew up on the station right now. Uh, right. Crew five came up on this on the SpaceX, but then there's the, you know, the crew that's already there. And, yeah. you know, one crew leaves and now this crew is alone. Most of them are rookies. And so I just picture what you an know, amazing you're time. You're just jealous, aren't you? You're just jealous. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, since it's not my, it's not my turn, right? So it's not right. really jealous. It's more... It's just really fun to think about what it must be like for them, what they're discovering and how this whole thing of flying everywhere right. is it's like it's not going away. And they've got six more months of it. In there. It's just so delicious. So talking about the International Space Station, I, I stumbled across something the other day that, that just brought a smile to my face. So you're probably familiar with these, but Samantha Cristoforetti, who is- Oh, she's um, so awesome. She she is. And I, I discovered just the other day that TikTok? she- uh, No, not, well, actually, this may have been on TikTok, but actually it was on Twitter. She reenacted a scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey. So anybody that remembers this, there's this just beautiful scene um, on a space station with the Blue Danube playing and this person serving dinner, but walking through the space station with Velcro on their feet. And they're sort of doing this 360 degree walk through this entranceway. And Samantha wants to know whether this would actually work. So she reenacts this with Velcro on her feet on the International Space Station with the Blue Danube playing. And it's just perfect. Oh my goodness. I, I did not get to see that one. She's she's reenacting different things. There's some Star Trek, I think. Right. Yes. But what I really love, and, and you know, by the time this podcast comes out, she'll actually be home and we'll see what kind of ripples she makes here at home. I'm sure they'll be immense. She just really thinks like, how can I bring other people up here? And she's so clever about it. Right. I, I, and I just love the fun and the whimsy. And of course, this is really serious being an astronaut, but there's also this, this sort of fun aspect to it as well. It, absolutely. Her first uh, space station mission was Expedition 42. And of course, that number evokes the of Hitchhiker's Guide to yes. the Galaxy. And it is my very favorite poster of a space yes. crew because they are all dressed up. Even like the most stern-faced of guys are just in lab coats with tea and oh, it's great. Of course, I, Samantha perfect. has the big gun. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should start. We should. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're asking, what can building a spaceship teach us about teams? So this conversation just 
blew my mind. And of course, yes, we're talking about building teams and we're talking about systems engineering, but really we're talking about what it takes to do really, really complex things and the sort of leadership that's required. And this was fantastic. Well, and at the center of it are these people, these systems engineers who are, if they were animals, I think they'd be octopi or octopuses because they're integrating all the different systems. But I think their brain somehow works in a very eight-armed way as well. Very so cool way. I like that. Yes, yes. That that, that ought to be the, the advertising slogan for systems engineering courses. Does your brain work in an eight-legged way? Oh, I love that. Come join us. <laughs> See, I, I like this. I feed you little parts and then you make a beautiful thing out of it. <laughs> uh, Andrew? Yes. Weekly obsession time. What are you obsessed with this week? This is a really weird one this week, actually. Well, and this for is- you... Really? Oh, tell me. It's even, not true. Even for me, yeah. So so my, I've been obsessing about song covers. And I, I've got to have a lead-in with this. So I've been obsessing about the, the 1982 Tears for Fears song, Mad World. And anybody who knows anything about this will know that Tears for Fears came out with this in 1982, didn't really go anywhere. But then the movie Donnie Darko came out in 2001. And there was this beautiful melodic cover of the the song. But what got me thinking about this was I was looking at all the different covers of the song. So this is what happens when you're on a flight across the, the country. I was flying back from DC and just needed something to do and got sucked into this. And what blew me away was there are loads and loads of covers of Mad World. But they're all from the movie. There are incredibly few from the original Tears for Fears performance. And there's one final twist to this this obsession. Years and years ago, my my daughter um, used to do stuff on YouTube, and she had this really good community of uh, friends there. And one of them was a young singer. And she did an amazing cover of Mad World. In fact, she actually did a mashup between Mad World and, and Crazy by Niles Barkley. That's what sort of got me along this route. And I still think that her mashup is the best of the lot here, even though everybody else has been doing this. So th- this is this is the weird rabbit hole that I fell down last week. What have you been obsessing about, Katie? I'd say much more pedestrian, but really important to me is um, fall is important to me up here in New England. Oh, you're making me so jealous now. We don't get fall in Arizona. So, I mean, every day is different. And it depends on the light and the leaves and what angle the sun is coming from. And it's just, I I almost just can't look away. And I realized though that like for astronomers and astrophysicists, every day is fall for them up in the universe. Like they don't want to look away either because it's all, like I look up, I'm like, oh, the stars look about the same. But but actually every day has got a little bit of a different twist for them and they and they don't want to miss any of them. So I love that. I, I you know, I can see a, a whole world of astronomers just sighing and thinking, ah, oh, she understands us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we should get down to our actual episode. Yes. Sending a mission into space, whether it is crewed or uncrewed, whether it's going to our moon or some other planet's moon or some distant asteroid or whatever, it's a really, really big, complex and difficult thing. There are often billions of dollars invested, obviously, in complex new technologies built especially for the mission. And these technologies have to work perfectly every time and withstand the trauma of launch and the extreme conditions of space. 
And all of this is created and operated by a huge team of people. They're working together. They're spread out all over the country or actually almost certainly all over the world. But there are partnerships between you know, different groups, public and private, those who have to communicate and work together to solve problems. And the main mission is to ensure mission success. And it's a monumental challenge. So, Katie, I'm sure you've worked on projects with teams, large or small, and I, I suspect a lot of people listening have done that. And maybe they didn't have multi-billion dollar budgets, but the stakes felt high and the challenge is complex and intimidating. And it's actually interesting to see that study after study has shown that many projects, projects that may involve large resources and take months or even years, often fail by some accounts more than half the time. So what have the people who send spacecraft to other worlds learned about how to run complex projects successfully? What can building a spaceship teach us about working with teams? To get answers, we spoke with Tracy Drain. Tracy is someone intimately familiar with the daunting complexities of sending missions into space. She's worked on no less than five successful space missions, including the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Kepler mission. She was the Deputy Chief Engineer for Juno, the Deputy Project Systems Engineer for Psyche. That's our very own Psyche from ASU, looking at a metal asteroid. And she's currently the lead flight systems engineer for the Europa Clipper mission. What's more, she's just a really neat person. Tracy Drain, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here with you today. I know you've worked on amazing, cool things, but I want to get to what it's like to really do that. And I think that starts with the definition of what your job is. Can you tell me like as a systems engineer, as a flight systems engineer, what does that mean? I think about systems engineering as a job that means you need to be responsible for finding all the things that would fall through the cracks of the different pieces of a spacecraft that need to work together. Because you'd have people who are focused on telecom and thermal and attitude control system. And there are things that we have to do in the design and also later in operations when the spacecraft's doing things we didn't quite expect that might influence more than just one of those areas. And if you don't have someone who feels like it's their job to have their arms around the whole thing and make sure all of these parts play nice together or find problems that are optimal across the system, then you have a hard time having a successful spacecraft. So systems engineers are big picture problem solvers across a big complex thing that has to go off and do a big complex job. So I've got to ask, on a big project, is there just one systems engineer? Are you the person <laughs> that does everything or is there a whole team of you? I would totally die if there was just one of me. You can never keep all that information inside one person's brain. Uh, so there is a group. On the project I'm on right now, I'm the lead flight system engineer for the Europa Clipper mission. There are about 40 people just on my systems engineering team for, oh, the, wow. for the spacecraft. But then there's a whole set of systems engineers for the instruments. There is a set of systems engineers at level two, we call it. And those folks are making sure the spacecraft and the instruments and the ground data system and the launch vehicle are all supposed to work together. And then kind of getting down into the nitty gritty details of the spacecraft is design and attitude control, for example, you'd have a system engineer, multiple ones there. You have a systems engineer for thermal. So systems, we try to embed across all so, levels. So are there any regular engineers or is everybody a systems <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> there are many, many regular are, engineers. Yes. Too. There are hundreds across the whole project. Yeah, it's 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 a big job. <laughs> but but this is what I love about big teams because especially in in a team where you're doing something that's really fragile, like 
sending stuff to another moon or another planet. There's so many things that are so important. Everybody's job is critically important. So everybody thinks that they're at the heart of this, which I guess <laughs> is why you need somebody that has the big picture to pull it all together. That is very well said. Sometimes people will ask me, what are the parts across the spacecraft that are the most important? And a thermal engineer might say, well, it's me, because if something gets too hot, it's not going to work anymore. And a telecom engineer might say, well, it's me, because if you can't talk to your spacecraft, you might as well have launched a brick. Like, what's the point? And payload engineers might say, it's us, because without instruments to go take data, why are you even going there in the first place? You could literally say that about every single So, so you just sort of swagger into work and you just sort of say, yeah, it's really me. I'm just going <laughs> to <laughs> Can you talk about how, in terms of Europa Clipper, where do you see like the really cool intersections of systems engineering? Europa Clipper is a mission that is under development right now. It's going to be a gigantic spacecraft, very large spacecraft, because we're sending it all the way out to Jupiter so that we can do flybys of one of Jupiter's moons called Europa. Very mm -hmm. special moon that scientists believe have ridiculous amounts of water, like twice all of the water in the Earth's oceans combined wow. under a shell of ice. <laughs> and it might have all of the right ingredients there for for habitability. Like maybe there, there could be life down there under the ice. We don't know. We're interested in seeing whether we can tell the thickness of the ice shell, whether they can get lucky and see some plumes coming out of there, like all sorts of cool things that the scientists are interested in. Me, engineer, not scientist, but I love knowing what the scientists are doing because that's that's why we're going there. So we're, we're intending to put the spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter, do lots of very low flybys of the Europa moon. And when I say low, when I joined this project and heard that some of our lowest flybys were 25 kilometers, Whoa. I'm like, is there a zero missing? You're effectively buzzing Europa. <laughs> exactly. We're buzzing the Europa Tower multiple times over four <laughs> years uh, in order to learn a whole bunch of things about this exciting little moon that's out there. And uh, right now we're in the process of building hardware. There's lots of hardware that's coming in. We're starting to integrate it and during what we call ATLO, which is assembly test, the main period that we're in right now, and then launch operations, which is going to come in October of 2024. It's our slated place to launch. So actually talk us through how this works. So this is obviously a really important mission. I mean, just looking at the science of it and what we might discover, incredibly important. But you've also got this just one shot. You're taking years to get this, this craft out there. How do you do that as an engineer? Sort of, what's the process going from that first sketch on the back of an envelope to actually getting it out there? It really essentially starts with uh, scientists who are trying to think of what are the big questions we're trying to answer. There's, every 10 years, there's a thing that comes out called the decadal survey, and the huge numbers of scientists will determine what are the things that are the most important for us to look into. And then once it's determined what, what are we trying to answer, then people will come up with mission concepts and mission plans. And then you're coming up with details of a spacecraft design. If we're trying to support these itty bitty instruments to go off and like get close in where they can get the data that they need, what kind of spacecraft do you need? Can it be solar powered? Can it be nuclear powered? Is it going to be a spinner? Will it be three axis stabilized? And so engineers like myself get heavily involved coming up with all these different things. And then you get to the point where you're settling in on a design. There's umbrella requirements and a requirement is just rules the design has to follow so you get the right mm -hmm. mission accomplished. So at level one, there might be like, go figure out how thick the ice shell of Europa is. And then you have a bunch of level two requirements, which might be things like your spacecraft can no be no bigger than X kilograms because we only have a launch vehicle that's this size and there you go. And then you keep going, you have hundreds of requirements that flow down to all the different levels until you get to things like 
this one component can have no more voltage draw than blah across all the different components. And then you start to, to design it, build it, put, put it together, and then test. And the testing phase is so important because with these spacecraft going hundreds of millions of miles away, unfortunately, we can't send Katie to go fix them if something's not working. And so we have to test the heck out of it and make sure it's redundant, it can take care of itself and things go wrong. And then once we launch it, we're in ops phase. And even though we're really smart, we can't anticipate every single problem. So things go a little bit sideways, hopefully not too far. And then systems engineers and others have to do the whodunit game when something weird mm-hmm. happens. What happened? Why did it happen? What can we do about it? And keep the mission on track. So yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> so during that whole process, these are real people who have come up with ideas, you know, together collaboratively, whatever, but they feel like, oh, I'm so proud I figured this out. And then they're told it can't be that way. And you can only take half of that. I mean, how does that part work? You might think that those kinds of setbacks are just pure anguish and everyone's just grinding through it every day to get it done. But for engineers like myself, we are problem solvers. We we were the kids, or at least I was the kid who grew up really enjoying puzzles, trying to fit things together. And that is where the interesting, challenging work comes in, especially when you have a problem, you only have so many knobs you can turn and you have to go through the process of laying out what are our options, what are the pros and cons. There are very few problems that have very clear, oh, you should just do this because then it wouldn't have risen to the point of having a conversation with the team anyway. So you you get into the nitty gritty details of trying to pull out those details, come up with how you even decide which is the least bad option usually and then move forward with it. So you actually get excited when you have problems. For most problems. Now there are some (laughs) where where you go to the dark place for a little while, but most of the time it's really interesting and exciting to solve those problems. I guess I'm still just thinking about the people aspect of that. I mean, the world that you described to me implies perfect empathy where everyone's can look at each other and think about, oh, well, that system, they need that. We have to do this. And it just seems like when you take real people, maybe at the end of a tired day, that this is hard. Yeah, you're right about that. It is hard. And so one of the things that is cool about being a systems engineer is it's kind of part of our training, how we learn and grow to think not just about how you find the technical solutions, but how you like work to build good relationships with people, how mm-hmm. you work through difficult things, even when there are people who don't necessarily agree, because we've all had those friendly arguments with people who have opinions that are different <laughs> from ours. And you can't allow yourself to get to the point where one person's going, we should do option A. And the other person's saying, we should do option B, no A, no B. Because like, yeah, you can't get a spacecraft build that way. And so one of the things that helps from a systems engineering process perspective is if we're trying to make a decision, we build a, something that's called a trade matrix. Where and, and any kid who's like applied to college has done this sort of thing. Which school should I go to? What are the things that matter to me? The programs. So by trade matrix, th- this isn't trades. This is trade-offs. Th- this is sort of trade-offs. Saying what, that's yes. right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so you're like, what are my options? What are the pros and cons? What are the things that matter? Do I weigh them differently? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's important about that is not just getting the facts on the table, but one of the things that can spur humans to argue and argue and argue is because one side feels like they haven't been heard. Mm-hmm. Is when you write down all the things on a trade matrix and hear all the good things, hear all the bad things, and everyone sees you've heard me, you've captured everything I've been trying to tell you. That even if you go with a different option, people don't feel like. Well, it's just because you didn't get it. Like, okay, you got it, but we still had to go do this other thing anyway. And that helps work through the whole human relationship 
thing where we can all get a little attached to our favorite option and and have trouble moving on when we make a different choice. So, so I, I feel there's so much we can learn from this in, in other areas. I, I just think about my students whenever they do teamwork. I, you know the thing about sort of um, university courses. Um, <laughs> everybody hates teamwork or group work because it ends <laughs> up with one person doing it and nobody else doing it and until the end when everybody else complains about the, the product. <laughs> so, so, what, so what can we learn in real life from sort of your approach? Because it obviously works when we're sending stuff up into space. One of the things that's useful in our whole trade-off study process is you determine upfront what are the things we have to do and what actions do we have to go take? Who has to go research what? Who has to go turn the crank on what thing and make mm-hmm. sure everyone understands their marching orders? And then you make sure you have regular tag-ups. This is one of the things that's problematic in school too, right? You have an assignment, you have three months, everyone is supposed to do stuff. You come together two and a half months in and you're like, oh, right. nobody's done anything. <laughs> And so we definitely like to have weekly tag-ups, especially on big issues, big trade studies. How's it going? Is anybody stuck? And for me personally, when I'm leading a group of people who's trying to talk through things, I like to come into a meeting, make sure we have an agenda. What is the objective with this specific meeting? And then at the end, make sure that we go back and reiterate the things we think we learned in that meeting, any new actions people have to go off and do with target dates so that people know when they need to come back so that we can keep things moving forward and get issues resolved. And I was going to ask about that because it seems from everything you've said that that common focus on the mission is so important. But how do you get everybody together? Is it easy? Is it obvious what the, the mission is? Or is that even contentious sometimes? Uh, you know, actually, it, it's not contentious at the very top level what the mission is and what we're trying to do scientifically. The mm-hmm. thing that winds up being contentious is that people can butt heads over the right approach for specific problems. Right. And sometimes to get everyone out of that place, it's a reminder, hey, we're all trying to accomplish X goal right? Heads nodding around the room. (laughs) And we all think the things that are the most important are X, Y, and Z, right? Head nod, head nod, right? And that's kind of building that, oh, we're all on the same page here. And then it's digging into why do we have such difference of opinion over these approaches? Let's talk some more specifically about which ones do we think are riskier and why? Which things do we think are harder to implement and why? Which things do we think are harder to test and why? And then get on the same path that way. So, Can I ask you quickly about the risk side of things? Because this is one of the things that I do. And one of the challenges with risks is everybody evaluates risk in different ways. How do you get everybody on the same page when it comes to risk-benefit analysis? Yeah, you're right. Uh, So everybody has their internal little gut feel that is a little bit different. And we try to put some very specific rigor on top of this. Um, Actually, for those of you who are listening, who are really interested in how NASA does it, there's a NASA Systems Engineering Handbook, and I'm pretty sure in there it describes a little bit about our risk process. And we have what we call a uh, five by five way of rating risks from Mm -hmm. one to five in terms of consequence, five is the worst, from one to five in terms of likelihood, five is the most likely. And we have specific definitions about what each of those bins means. If, if something happens and it means your whole spacecraft's going to die, that's a five. <laughs> but then we have a whole bunch of different instruments on board and maybe some instruments contribute more to the main science requirements than others. So that might be a little bit weighted different. And then whenever we identify a risk, oh, if this thing happens, then this bad thing would happen. Uh, and we don't like that. And so we'll do the risk rating and we'll, we'll have a group of people who discuss it. And in that internal gut feel, we try to like use words to describe why we think it's in which and what we should do about it. Uh, We actually have a a regular risk board that meets at the project level, on the spacecraft side, on the payload side, mission system side, all the different levels with a set board of people who need to participate every time it meets. Teresa, do these tools um, and techniques that you've talked about, do they come from systems engineering specifically or are they developed maybe through psychology? 
a lot of the tools that are about how we go about problem solving from a technical perspective come from systems engineering, like the risk management and the trade matrices and those things. But systems engineers trying to think about humans as cogs of the problem we're trying to solve and trying to get people to work nicely together and to be motivated about what they're doing. Some of that, I think, does come a little from psychology. It's trying to Mm -hmm. understand what people feel is the most important, what makes them comfortable so that we can get enough opinions and thoughts out on the table, what makes people able to chill out a little bit and listen to when other people are talking. And it isn't that we are required to take many psychology classes <laughs> to be systems engineers. But I think we tend to self-filter a little bit because the ability to work well with people, um, it helps if you're a people person. And if you're working with other senior systems engineers who are demonstrating these great ways of team building and, and getting creative thoughts out of people and working towards consensus ideas on how to resolve things, you kind of pick it up along the way, but it does feel a little bit like psychology in some areas. <laughs> I mean, I found sometimes in our world, um, changing the environment, like bringing the team out of mission control. And so I am saying happy hour, right? Uh-huh, yes. um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but also, I mean, I think it just puts people in a different environment sometimes there's just casual conversations that have to happen. They find some commonalities and that helps them perhaps. I couldn't agree more, especially the happy hours. (laughs) But uh, I I think one of the things that I find to be the most important about that, it's been so underscored through these last couple of crazy years of pandemic. Mm -hmm. I joined Europa Clipper in May of 2020 when we were deep into the first part of the pandemic. There's so many people on my team I had literally never met. And you can just tell that without having that opportunity to get to know people as human beings, there's a little bit less of that, uh, how do I say this? When you know someone because you've seen them face-to-face, you can share jokes, you have that five Mm -hmm. minutes as each meeting is starting talking about your weekend or how are your kids or, oh, you had a wedding anniversary. You just have this natural, more inclination to take a pause when someone says something that you think is crazy, for instance, you don't just say, what are you talking about? You go, okay, this is so-and-so. I know you. You're not a crazy person. Maybe there's something I'm not understanding. (laughs) Let me ask in a gentle way. Can you please explain the statement you just made? And there's just a little more lubrication in those human relationships when we're trying to get work done. So yeah, getting outside the work environment and getting to know people, I think, can be a big deal. We had a really big problem that we worked on, which was how to make sure that we know how to repair spacecraft like the space shuttle after Columbia. And I found that making sure that we did things that were a little bit different, it kind of helped them expand their horizons a bit. And then at one point we were having a lot of discussions about would this work and how do we test it? And it was all kind of like frosting a cake. Mm. I mean, that's what repairing the shuttle was like, was like frosting a cake where you make that first pass with the frosting. It's beautiful. And the second one, it kind of rolls up and, you know, you never want to touch it. You're like, do not touch it again. (laughs) And so I ended up, we were at a particularly tough time in making choices and it had to do with what we all thought about the models. And I had my neighbor, it's a cake baker, make a giant, giant cake (laughs) and a huge vat of stucco covered frosting. (laughs) And I brought every tool in my kitchen drawer and every, people had to damage their cake and then fix it. Wow. And in doing all this together, somehow we ended up more on the same page. Wow. It was great fun. <laughs> that is marvelous. I'm locking that one in. <laughs> There's a specific person on our project right now who does a lot of really good and super fun team building things. I'm like mentally typing up the email to her right now. 
But this does seem to sort of resonate with the idea that this sort of mentality, this sort of approach has utility almost in every part of our lives. I mean, it always strikes me that we're living in a time at the moment where people are more polarized than ever and people are less <laughs> willing to work together and compromise. And it seems like this is the sort of thing that you fix and deal with every day. Mm -hmm. um, should we have systems engineers in Congress? Yes, in the please. White House. Yes, yeah. please, 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 <laughs> so, and more and more. You know, how so, would it be different? I think that it's bringing that mentality of trying to remind people of what the common ground is that we're after. And even mm -hmm. though you're right, politics is just a crazy town right now. But there are still things that people can agree on. We all want. We would love for every person in this country to be happier, right? I think we can mm. agree on that one. And then in talking about the different approaches that people have where there's so much animosity, no, we should be this, no, we should do that. This whole process of saying, so if we want to do this, the goal is blah, blah, blah. The reasons we think this thing would help achieve those goals are blah, blah, blah. And then be honest about the downsides of this option are blah, blah, blah. And then do the same for the other option and then have some real conversations about them that aren't just trying to stand on a dogmatic soapbox, right? And I think the thing right. that will be difficult about that is we as systems engineers are trained to think that way. That's kind of baked into our DNA now. Not everybody who is a politician is trained to think that way. <laughs> right. And, and there, are, there are things that are outside of that purely problem-solving process that also contribute. I'm trying to get reelected. I'm trying to write all, all the things that go along right. that. So I think it'll be challenging, even if we do drop a bunch of systems engineers in there, to try to see their way through that whole morass and get people thinking more in that way. But we can dream. Can you talk about some of the successes or the failures that you're most proud of? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll give you a couple of oldies but goodies. And one that has just, is from Kepler launch day back in 2009. And it's just seared into my brain. I think the whole process took two years off the end of my life, but <laughs> that mission was so successful that it still feels like a high point, right? The mission launched in 2009 and from the outside world, I think the launch looked flawless. I even read in a book recently, a line that said, it was a picture perfect launch. And I was like, wow, I didn't feel that way because in the, in the control room, uh, I was, I thought, it makes me laugh every time I say this. I was about 34 years old, which feels ludicrously young for people who come work at a place like JPL and stay there for your entire career. But I was at the point where I was responsible to be the anomaly lead of this team of very fantastic engineers. If anything went wrong with the spacecraft after liftoff, we had to deal with it. And of course, like you said, Katie, you train, you have operational readiness tests, you go through all these scenarios and you're like ready for it. But as we launch the spacecraft and you lose contact with it and you have to wait for a set period of time and it's like you're supposed to get initial contact. Well, that time came and went and, and went and went. <laughs> you have that like ticking up on a roller coaster feeling like, here we go. And uh, my mom is so funny. She's one of the people who has inspired me most of loving science fiction. And she loves the movie Armageddon, even though like, mm. not my favorite. <laughs> but there's, there's this quote that she loves and it was so on loop in the back of my head, which was, this is what you train for. Now suck it up. <laughs> so, I'm like trying not to freak out, staying calm here. But then we got the, we got the space in contact and we realized that it had the computer had rebooted it had swapped to some backup hardware like holy cow so now you have to start the anomaly response process crazy things happen all the time we have a process for that you you go through these generic questions give people enough time to look at their data is something time critical is something getting way too hot is something getting way too cold are we running out of power like get that out of the way if there's something time critical grab your playbook do the stuff you have to do but if it's not time critical 
then then take your time, dig through the information, figure out what happened, and then figure out how to get the spacecraft back to normal configuration. Uh, and anyway, I, we figured out what it was. We got the spacecraft recovered, but it took about two days to get back to nominal recovery. Um, and then there was lots and lots of conversations, you know, what this was like too, Katie, with people to explain what we knew, when we knew it, why we made the decision like that, took another two weeks after that. <laughs> but the spacecraft itself was fine. And that mission could not have been more wildly successful. So I'm so proud of having been a teeny part of that, like, holy cowski. Uh, yeah, the one of the failures that I am the most proud of because it happened so early in my career and I learned so much from it. Way back on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, I was such a baby when I started on that mission. It was my first flight mission and we as systems engineers get to be part of the team who write the sequences, which are just a series of commands so that the spacecraft will go do blah, 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 blah thing. And I was responsible for writing the sequence of commands to do the high gain antenna calibration. And you think of, think of a high gain antenna as like a flash light that you're pointing at the ground and the flashlight doesn't have a very equal uh, amount of light that it's making across the whole beam. Say it's got like this pattern. Some spots are brighter, some spots are dimmer, and you want to know exactly where the dim and bright spots are so that when you're pointing your spacecraft, you want to get like the center bright spot on the antenna on the ground when you're way far away. Mm -hmm. And so during cruise, we had to do this. We took the whole spacecraft and moved it a little bit this way and moved it a little bit that way and moved it a little bit this way like, in this little raster pattern as if you were drawing a grid on a piece of paper. And so it was a fairly straightforward sequence to write, but I just kept making dumb little errors. Anyone who has done coding, any tiny little error will just do something dumb to your sequence. And so you make it, you test it, you find a mistake, you make it, you test it, you find a mistake, you make it, you test it. Finally, we got the thing sent up to the spacecraft, the spacecraft motions, everything's going well. And then the attitude control systems engineers are going, wait. Where's my high rate IMU data? We were supposed to take this inertial measurement unit data at like 200 hertz instead of a much lower rate so that they could very, very carefully know exactly where the spacecraft was. And in, in all the iterations, apparently I had had it on, but then like <laughs> messed it up and didn't configure it right. And we didn't catch it in the test analysis. And they, it's like, it just didn't make that data. I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry. What do we do? <laughs> and the and these lovely, lovely human beings who were responsible for figuring out, they're like, you know, like we actually can figure out a way to get what we need without the high rate data. It'll be fine. It's okay. <laughs> I felt so terrible, but I learned such an important lesson from that which is how to be much more careful along the way and not just be like, ah, I can do it again later. And we have this phrase, Katie, you might know this too, where we say, uh, don't get co-pilot syndrome. Just because you know multiple people are going to be reviewing a test data, you should mm -hmm. pretend to yourself, no one else is going to look at it. And if there is an error in there, you had better be the one to find it. Because for me, going, ah, you know, attitude control is going to look at this, telecom is going to look at it. If right. I screw up, they'll find it, right? You, you cannot have that mentality because it could slip past everybody. So and I was glad I learned that lesson early in my career. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't get fired. <laughs> I love that. Tracy, it's very clear that you come from the place that dares mighty things. And just hearing how things work and how you bring people together and how systems engineers are part of the secret sauce of these great spacecraft gives me great hope. Thanks yeah. for being with us. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Katie, I was just looking at the latest photos from the James Webb Space Telescope. Andrew, stop right there. We are a podcast. Those are images. We cannot share those with our listeners. <sighs> right. We can't show you what space looks like. 
but we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Andrew, do you think this could be a new cover for Mad World? So this is uh, th- this is music from my happy space. This is the sort of stuff I would put on as I'm sitting down with a glass of wine and I'm writing my, my latest paper, editing it with the headphones on. So this is really cool stuff. But so I'm getting wise to this. This is season three. We've done this a number of times. So I'm pretty sure that this is something like a picture of a star field and you see a line going across and every time that line hits a little star or something, you hear one of these little blips. So the question then is sort of whereabouts is this from? Actually, I have no idea I'm making this up. Let's say this is this is some fancy nebula with lots of little stars in and you're hearing those beautiful little harmonic blips from the stars as this sort of bar sweeps across the, the page. Am I anywhere close? That was the sound of the deepest X-ray image ever taken, and it was obtained by NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. Your favorite. And it was translated into sound by the great folks at System Sounds, and it's not actually the sound of the black hole. This is a sonification of the image that includes these black holes. So the central portion of the image contains the highest concentration of supermassive black holes ever seen. This image allows scientists to explore the earliest days of black holes and see how they've changed over billions of years. So as the bar travels from the bottom of the image to the top, the colors of the dots, almost all of them, black holes or galaxies, determines the pitch of the notes. And the colors towards the red end of the spectrum are heard as low notes, while the colors towards the purple are the high ones. The wide range of musical frequencies represents the full range of X-ray frequencies collected by the Chandra telescope. Even the stereo position of the notes indicates the position of the sources from left to right. It's a way of hearing the data in the image rather than seeing it. That was the sound of deep, deep space and thousands of black holes. And I love that. I I also love the fact that I got the sonification with the bar going up. But even more importantly, I love the fact that we can take these images, incredible images, not just of stars, but of whole galaxies and black holes, and actually create something of them which you can hear. And it makes sense orally. This is amazing. Well, I was so excited to tell you about this because it's Chandra and it's Black Holes and it's so cool that I didn't actually say congratulations. You have earned a point this season. I would say you're getting most of the sound of space. I'm a slow learner, (laughs) but I get there in the end. Totally. said for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And please, if you haven't already done so, go subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. We will read them. 
write to us from our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU and send us a tweet, a comment, a question. And please do recommend us to your friends. We'd really love that. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen. Our intern is Mason Miller. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.